Welcome to Where RA Now, a podcast dedicated to catching up with NYU alumni who served in the role of RA and listening to their journey of life after graduating from New York University. My name is Christian and I'm tonight's co-host. I'm an RA from Carlisle from Los Angeles studying music technology. Welcome. Welcome, Christian. I'm Tom Ellett, uh, the other co-host, and I serve as the Senior Associate Vice President of Student Affairs. So, Carlisle, but before that, you were somewhere else. Oh my god, it's so funny you bring that up, because I'm a second-year RA, so right now I'm in Carlisle Court, but last year, I was in Othmer Hall in Brooklyn. So, you know, Brooklyn represent. Need to shout out for Brooklyn, so, you know. Look at that. So, very different to be on the Brooklyn campus than here at Washington Square? Yeah, very different. I'd say different energies. Um, my first year, I had a really good time. Really got to get to know a lot of Tandon students. I'm not in Tandon, so you know that was very new to me. I'm getting to know all the majors, what the student life is like there. It's actually a really, really vibrant campus. Like, there's a lot going on in Tandon. Their club life is amazing. They have a lot of stuff going on, so it was really great. Moving to Union Square, which is where Carlisle is, that's like a lot different. Lots of stuff happening. So very different energies, I would feel like, you know. I got like, the residents were a lot different in Brooklyn compared to Carlisle. So, you know, a big change, but I'm really happy about it. Are there things in Brooklyn that you miss? What I really, really liked about Brooklyn was the fact that I could separate where I lived from where I went to school. And, you know, that's like an issue that I've had since my first year at NYU. I lived in Hayden, but it's now called Lipton, my first year. I was really close to campus, obviously, right on Washington Square. You know, I was always in the same bubble. So I would say going to Brooklyn and coming back and forth between Manhattan was really, really nice. I appreciate it a lot. And do you enjoy the 14th Street stuff that happens there? Right now you have the the holiday things going on, and it's a bustle place. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I really like Union Square. I just think a really big thing for me is having things around that are really accessible to me. In Brooklyn, everything would, like, close down at, like, 10 p.m. So, like, if you wanted, like, McDonald's late at night, couldn't get McDonald's McDonald's, late at night. McDonald's, bad for you. You know what? Let me live my life. (laughs) I'm allowed to have my vices. You are allowed. And in the staff at Carlisle, a good experience for you? Yeah, 100%. It's been really nice. There weren't that many returners in Carlisle this year. There's four. And then myself. So very different, like, environment. But, like, the returners are so welcoming. My BLT is amazing. Yeah, it's been a really, really awesome environment. No issues so far. You know, there's always issues sometimes when you're working with anyone. But it's been really smooth. We've been really good about talking to each other. It's like family. Good. I'm glad to hear mm-hmm. that. And tonight, we have a guest who will talk about family and his experiences in RA. I remember him a long time ago. Who is our guest tonight? Well, Tom, it's funny you ask that because today our guest is Mark Levy, who served as an RA in Brittany Hall for RG Conjumbula, Ashley Staples, and Stephen King during the 2010 20. 12 years. Welcome, Mark, and thank you for joining us on tonight's show. It's a real pleasure having you on. How are you? Uh, How's it going? And where are you calling us from? All great questions, Christian. Thank you for having me, first off. It's good to be here and good to be had all the same. I am calling you from Midtown Manhattan, where I live and work. I have been well since being an RA, if that answers one of your other questions. So, Mark, tell us what you studied while you were here at NYU. I had a major in history in the College of Arts and Sciences. I had a minor in business studies, which was also in CAS, but was mostly Stern classes. And then I had another minor in uh, social studies education, which was actually in Steinhardt. So every time I registered for classes, I had to go see four different advisors. And they were probably (laughs) really glad to see you. You're a fun guy to be around. Oh, well, I, I appreciate that, Tom. I had a a bit of good luck in terms of my major advisors. And I certainly 
got the job done when it came to registering for classes, despite, as you could imagine, you know, the many different moving parts in that machine. Yeah, that's wonderful. So you had a lot of stuff going on in your undergrad. Tell us about what you're doing now compared to then. Sure. Well, now I work, my day job is in music publishing. So I'm the licensing manager at a music publisher that effectively means I license music for film, television, commercials, what have you, anytime that songs in our catalog is synchronized with the visual image, hence a synchronization license. That's the type of licensing. Now, when you were an RA in Brittany, you were on an explorations floor, if I remember correctly. You do remember correctly, Tom. I was the RA of the Fame Floor, which, as I recall, stands for Featuring All Musical Endeavors. I'll do you one better, because in addition to being the RA of that floor for two consecutive years, I actually lived on that floor my freshman year. And then my sophomore year, myself and a bunch of my floor mates, we applied to create an explorations floor for our sophomore year, which we called Encore, appropriately. And that was at Gramercy. So basically, I went from being a resident on the Fame Explorations floor freshman year to being on another affiliated Explorations floor sophomore year to being the RA of the Fame floor junior and senior year. Wow. Who was your RA that freshman year for you? Oh, that was Justin Dayhoff. That's right. Yeah, Justin Dayhoff. And at the time, you know, they pretty much discontinued I forget what the exact position was, but we also had like another member of student staff living on the floor. A peer educator. Yeah, that's the term for it. And that was Jason Ray, who is someone who I'm still very close friends with, who also, you know, still lives in the city and I see quite frequently. He was at my show this weekend. So I saw him two days ago. That's great. Do you and your wonderful first year RA stay connected at all? Well, Justin's a great guy, and periodically I encounter him through Facebook, but he is very much a settled married man with a kid down in Florida. So I don't necessarily speak to him much. He's very busy down there with his life. But yeah, periodically we'll we'll cross paths on Facebook or what have you and exchange a few words. Mark, tell us a little bit about the relationships you had with your residents on the fame floor. The residents really tended to do most of you know the work when it came to building a community. There's a lot of self-starting people that have the wherewithal to write, you know, in tandem with their application to NYU, fill out even more paperwork in order to join an explorations floor. So already you're kind of getting people who are driven, know what they like, and want to set themselves up in an environment that they know that they'll be comfortable. Because of that, because you have a lot of people of that description living on the fame floor together, a lot of times as the RA, I would be, you know, very hands off and just kind of let them have their social lives and try to steer programming, you know, from that part, you know, kind of see what they were already gravitating towards doing, see the things that kind of interested them as a floor, whether it would be going to movies together, going to concerts together, doing things like that. And then I try to tie it into programming. So the community was always very resident centric. They really did the lion's share of the work in the same way that I feel proud of my freshman year floor and how close knit we were and how I still talk to many, many people who lived on that floor, including, you know, one who's like my best friend from NYU. The residents really were the important ingredient there because they, 
knew that it was a community that they wanted to live in, and they really made the most of it. I know some people who were on the Fame Forum, Brittany, their first year, and they were just so involved and so driven to make stuff happen. It was really, really great to see residents being that involved in everything, especially looking back as an RA now. So apart from building community in Brittany, what kind of other skills did you learn from the role? One of the best skills you learn as an RA is straight talk. Which is straight talk. I want to hear this. I want to hear straight talk from Mark Levy. Go ahead, Mark. Oh, well, I mean, I don't think you get very far in an RA position if people don't respect you and you're not upfront with them. I feel that you see a lot of RAs who kind of fall into a more passive voice with the residents. They try to be everyone's best friend. And in reality, that ends up just kind of ostracizing them from the community that they're trying to build because people are like, okay, this person is begrudgingly doing his job to reprimand me for doing something bad. And that's obviously the part of being an RA that no one really likes is when you have to fulfill a disciplinary role. But in reality, I've found that being straight with people as an RA is much the same as in, you know, real life, in work, in your career. If you know how to level with people, but be respectful and be direct, I think in the long run, it sets you up for better relationships, be it in business, an RA to resident. People will respect you because they know that as far as their actions goes, you're going to hold them accountable, but you will also find a way to do it that's constructive without being just unnecessarily, how should I say this, overzealous in your disciplinary instincts. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that transition you've had from the time you graduated to going into working full-time in the music business. My son's starting out, it's a hard field. It's a hard field to find work in. Absolutely, and I think a lot of that stems from the fact that the landscape of music business and the music industry at large has changed so drastically over the last 10, 20 years. It's definitely a landscape where going into it at an entry-level position you know, my best piece of advice for young people is find what you can, try to make the connections as best of your ability when you're at a position like that, where you're very much at the bottom of the food chain. But really, you know, take stock of, hey, what is it that I'm doing? What is the bigger picture? Like, where does my company sit in the music business? What is its role? And then determine if that's the kind of work you like. And if it's not, it's in your best interest to change up and say, hey, well, if I don't really like where you know, the top echelon of this company sits in the music business. If that's the career that I'm looking at in my future and I'm not really loving the work, then maybe it's something, you know, that I should look elsewhere within the industry to see if there's something that's more fulfilling. I know a lot of people on my end of things, in the music publishing side of things, who love the business end of it. And that's why they were drawn to music publishing. There's other people who are more creative types that would love A&R or something where it's more artist facing instead of writer facing. But anyway, I'll get back to your original question, which is how the transition from college into, you know, my career planned out. So graduating from NYU, my original intentions were to go into teaching. I had a few options on the table that I was pursuing. Number one, which was kind of a secondary intention. I, I, I wouldn't say that it was like the number one thing that I wanted to do, but it was certainly an option that I was keeping open was I applied for Teach for America. I ended up not getting into Teach for America. And in the long run, I think it's one of the best things that ever happened to me. But at the time I was kind of you know, very miffed about the whole situation, mainly because when you go through that application process, you're going through it with 
your peers, people who are also applying for that program. So to kind of like come out of that and see who were the people who were accepted, who were the people who were rejected, you know, it definitely put a, a sour taste in my mouth. But needless to say, I was still planning to be a teacher. So I pursued another option at that time, which was teaching part-time at a camp in New Jersey for, for gifted kids. And that was very interesting because I could basically, it was a summer camp right after I graduated from NYU. And I got to spend the summer teaching a course where I could basically design my curriculum. I could work with students who, again, you know, similar in theme to the the fame explorations floor, what I was saying about self-driven, self-motivated kids, kids who were at a camp where they knew there were going to be classes over the summer. So you could imagine the kind of personalities that that you you have voluntarily signing up for something like that. They're kids who want to learn and are driven and want an exciting, you know, stimulating classroom experience. So that said, I taught a music science class, obviously, because I've always been interested in music and because I loved teaching. I felt that that was a very good intersection given the camp that I was teaching at, where it was a science course that, you know, the kids' parents would be happy. Hey, my kid's in a science course over the summer. And it was a music course, which both fulfilled my own interests, but also I thought, you know, was a very unique perspective to teach these kids, a lot of whom played an instrument. They were young kids, but we're talking like middle school age and younger. Most of them already had started an instrument in the regular school, but never really learned much about the science behind sound and, you know, about the anatomy of the ear and things like electronics that go into building electric instruments, things, things of that nature. So that's what I was doing part-time. And when the fall came around, I was still looking for a full-time teaching position, which is when two of my friends from NYU actually advised me of an opening at the company where I now work, MPL Communications. Basically, you know, I kind of went in for an interview there for an internship, and I realized almost instantaneously that they were pretty much only interviewing college students at the time. And as you can imagine, when you're a college student in the fall and you are setting up an internship schedule, you can only offer so many hours. You could say, oh, well, I have classes on this day, this day, and this day, so I can work two days out of the week. Whereas I had graduated college and it was a paid internship, could get by on the, you know, the, uh, the hourly rate that they were paying. I just said, well, I'm available Monday to Friday, nine to five take it or leave it. And they, I think, found it a lot more sensible to hire one person to do a full week's work rather than hire like several individual students and coordinate schedules. So that's how I squeaked in the door there as an intern. That's really awesome. So I have another question for you. I have a lot of friends within like the music department here at Steinhardt and for music business kids specifically, it's kind of hard for them to get into the industry. So what advice would you have for someone who doesn't have that many connections, but has some like work skills that they can transfer into the industry. How would one get started in that? On my end of things, in the music publishing business, there's a lot of big music publishers, like ones like Sony ATV, Warner Chapel, and even like larger independents like Downtown Music Publishing, things of that nature. Almost all of those that I know of have their own proprietary job site. And furthermore, they usually post things on like typical job websites, be it monster.com or simply hired, what have you. So what I would recommend is honestly, if you think that you want to go into, for instance, music publishing, like scope out who are the big 
names in the industry, go on their proprietary website, see if they're hiring internship positions and just apply. Because at the end of the day, you're already going to have that much more of a connection than the person who never bothers to apply in the first place. That's the first step. And I think a lot of people kind of get set in their ways and they let the inertia of, oh, I don't know anyone there. I don't have a connection. I'm never going to get it. They kind of let that actually inhibit them from just doing the legwork and saying, all right, I'm going to throw out 10 applications today. And if I hear back from one of them, that's still a win, even if it's a rejection, because I'm now in the database in 10 of those companies. Mark, tell me a little bit about what it is that you do on a day-to-day basis in terms of the work that you do. It's largely contract-based when it comes to the licensing component of my job. When people want to come use a song in our catalog, they reach out to us. And then usually what my job is, is to gather the specifics of the project, be it, you know, like the media that the production is going to be released in, if it's a television show or feature film, or even, you know, a commercial, try to get a read on exactly what rights they're trying to clear. Talking about like term, territory, things of that nature. And then once we take all of that information, we kind of synthesize it and we, you know, negotiate a fee for the use. So as you could imagine, with so many different ways to use songs that would, you know, fall under the sync license umbrella anytime that it, the song was synchronized with the visual image. That's the definition. There's a lot of different negotiations that take place. And there's a lot of kind of on a case by case basis philosophy that goes into the job I do. There's no two projects that are really the same, either, you know, for the songs that they're requesting to use or the scope of the project, be it the media rights that they're looking to clear, or even, you know, the list of all songs in the production. That's one of like the key deciding factors sometimes when we negotiate fees about this is it's like, look, if this is the only song in the project versus if there's like a hundred songs that they're trying to clear for this music documentary, those are very different uses. So that's the licensing portion of my job. And that's most of it. That's basically my entrance into my role at MPL started entirely in licensing. I started as an intern and then I moved into a licensing administrator position uh, up to licensing manager. And now basically I kind of wear a lot of different hats because I'm someone who's capable of taking on a lot of projects that don't necessarily have to do with licensing. So not to have you break an NDA, could you speak to some high profile stuff that you've worked on? It's a pretty open secret that you know, my company is owned by Paul McCartney. So if you look at some of his recent releases and you look in the special thanks section, you see my name and the name of people I work with because we handle a lot of clearances for releases like that. Now, that's something that doesn't really come into my day-to-day job. He's definitely the the obvious example because anyone who Googles the name of the company can find pretty quickly that it's Paul McCartney's. It's the name that he uses in the copyright notice line of any of his releases if you like reading fine print. It's very exciting dealing with someone who's been in the music industry for as long as he has and been so important to the industry. You mentioned earlier the trends. 20 years ago, things were different. How are things changing today in the field? 
This year, probably the biggest sea change in the music business from a legal standpoint in generations. I'm sure some professors have been talking about the new legislation that passed, which is the Music Modernization Act. Its goal was to bring a lot of really regressive policies that are in U.S. copyright law into the 21st century. I think that that's the big headline of this year is Music Modernization Act and everything that will come with it. But in terms of more consumer-based changes, in reality, like we are all witnesses of the birth of the streaming age when all of a sudden the ownership of, you know, a recording, it's a very blurred area. There's a lot of people who walk around with Spotify playlists downloaded to their phone and they don't really own the music. They're basically a paid subscriber to a service that leases them the music during that time. Imagine how much of a substantial leap. The only way you could listen to music is to buy the sheet music, learn how to play piano and play it, or you know, in some cases get a player piano to play it for you, to now where it's you pay a company who has the rights to it and they stream it to you. And that's only happened in the last five years that streaming services have become the number one way that people listen to music. So looking back on your career, what is some of the stuff that you're most proud of? There's a lot of like little licenses or big licenses for that matter that have come and gone that if I wasn't there doing my job and I wasn't doing our job as a publisher, they never would have happened. There's one song that was in our back catalog called Similo. And this song kind of doesn't get used much because it's an oddity. And uh, just this past year, I think it was Samsung commercial used it. And, you know, I was very proud to watch that project breathe new life into a song like that. So to be a part of that process is really great. Speaking of fellow NYU alumni, you know, this marvelous Miss Maisel, that show uses so many amazing songs. We license, you know, a ton of music for that because we have a lot of songs from that period. And, you know, the jobs that the music supervisors do in those instances, it's like they don't just take what was the top 10 songs of that year. They find really cool stuff that works within the confines of the show. That's a very fun thing to be a part of that process. I think that music publishing kind of gets this name as it's a very buttoned up businessy, you know, wing of the music business overall. But in reality, you know, there is creativity there. And although a lot of the work is more legal in nature, there are moments like that where it's, you know, you're really proud to see a project come to fruition like that. Congratulations. That's really cool that you're able to do that. And what a great project. You mentioned earlier that uh, some of the alums that you have worked with, this is your chance to talk about Briefly tell us some names of those RAs that you stay in contact with as alums. Oh, sure. Well, I mean, other RAs, you know, one of my uh, best friends at NYU and my current roommate is uh, someone who I met at Brittany. We worked together my senior year, Brian Strelko. We see each other every day. Every day as roommates, I would imagine. <laughs> Go, any other shout outs? Another one of my closest friends, uh, another fellow RA at NYU, Natty Leach, who's down in Philadelphia and actually working for a university. He was at Temple as basically an advisor to med school students. And now he took a promotion and I forget where exactly he went to, but I just remember that at the time it was very exciting news. It's very cool to see that he stayed in 
higher education. That's very fulfilling work that he's doing. I already mentioned Jason Ree, very good friend who I met way back in freshman year of college when he was, you know, a peer educator. Yeah, I just don't want to leave people out, but every person that I tend to talk to from RA times they're all really wonderful people, the ones who I was friends with to begin with. You know, that's why we made the connection during that time. There were a lot of RAs. And frankly, like, you know, I only got to know really well, like the ones who I, I got on with. So when I see them now, it's it's a very wonderful kind of motif of, hey, we haven't missed a beat. Glad to hear you're doing well. Great to see you. And a lot of them are doing really great work, too. So like, you know, if you're looking for more people on your podcast, one of my friends, Hillary Brandenburg, could probably give you uh, great stories about how she was working for the the Treasury Department under Obama, as you could imagine, she's no longer working under Obama. So uh, I'll let her finish that story for you. But yeah. <laughs> there you yeah. go. I love it. All right, Mark. So what we're going to do now is I'm going to hit you with some speed round questions. So are you ready? Yeah. I mean, I, I you know me, Tom. Brevity is my middle name. Yeah, right. You were going to get you really quickly, Mark. Here we go. What is your favorite tradition at NYU? Midnight breakfast. Favorite program as a resident? When they used to have the CMJ Festival, the fame floor used to get free passes to it. I don't think that they do that music festival anymore, but you could imagine what it's like to be handed free passes to like dozens of shows in New York in the course of one weekend, and you just had free reign of the city to go wherever you want. That was an amazing thing. Best dining hall. I'm going to be bold here. My favorite was always Ruben because it was quiet and no one would bother you. Close now. Close. That's that's a shame. And like, you know, for what it's worth, like your current residents, I don't think they're missing much in the ways of dining hall. It was always a no frills kind of uh, environment. You know, you didn't have the options you had elsewhere. But I, I liked the vibe of it in that it was the place you could go to get some peace and quiet and eat your cereal. <laughs> There you go. Any celebrity sightings while an NYU student? Yeah, like all of them. <laughs> I mean, they're all around that area. But my favorite was Paul Simon, who I actually met at a show of his sons. His son was in like a high school rock band. And my roommate and I basically were like, yo, this is Paul Simon's son. We should go to the show. So we went out and we got to meet him. Definitely one of my favorites. Which hall had the best team? Oh, you're asking the wrong guy. I think I was always the guy who's kind of like, oh, yeah, you're doing Hall Olympics today. Yeah, have fun with that. <laughs> Is there a ghost in Brittany? Ah, I mean, there's probably more than one. I mean, it, Tom, I don't know if you remember this, but my one of my like big essays that I wrote whilst in the history department at NYU was on the history of the building. Brittany residence hall. So I can tell you there's a lot of history in that building and the ghosts are probably like the least interesting part of it. Um, you know, like I find it more fascinating that the executor to Albert Einstein's will lived in the building and that the building when it was a hotel would get two bags of mail a day, two giant bags of mail. One bag was for all of the residents in the building and the other entire bag was for that man, the guy who was the executor to Albert Einstein's will. So, like, there's a lot of really cool history in that building. And, uh, well, whether or not it's haunted, I never saw any. We'll have to get that paper to put on the website, too. All right. The last speed round question. Um, what was your most memorable RA experience? I remember that there was at the beginning of, I think it was my senior year, there was 
something went on when they were they had closed down Rubin Residence Hall for renovations over the summer. And at the time when it reopens, there was some, you know, like serious, like behind schedule construction or something like that. And I remember that the RAs at the time over there were just totally swamped. So it was the, you know, the professional staff there. And we, as a staff at Brittany, two blocks, you know, away, decided that it would be nice to go like bring them like a care package. Like, hey, we know you're going through the thick of it. Kind of just walked over there and crashed their staff meeting and brought them like goodies and stuff. For what it's worth, that to me is one of the real standout moments of being an RA because it wasn't about the RA manual. It wasn't about like doing rounds. It wasn't about like all the things that, you know, people are in the thick of when they're at NYU. It was just like a human moment that was a genuine example of an RA community, something that you can't train people to do something that you can't like put in a manual and and do with like hall events that try to build camaraderie it was just one of those things where it's like when you have good people together they'll rise to the occasion and i think that that's one of my favorite examples of seeing that in action at nyu you mentioned earlier your show what what are you doing there's many different things but that particular show i was playing at joe's pub this past weekend with my band Cool. What's your name of your band? The Academy Blues Project. If you want to check us out, we have a website and we're on the Spotify and the, you know, all the, all the fun music channels. The website's ABP, like Academy Blues Project, ABP.NYC or just the Academy Blues Project.com. So that's one thing that I do performance wise. I'm also in the house band on a tech variety show which is basically a lot of like startups that are new york city based and beyond and people who are kind of big wigs in the tech industry meet for a like old school talk show variety show where there are sketches and whatnot but also interviews with people and that's called live from tomorrow you know one of the band leaders for that and we kind of help with interstitial music and the song numbers and the shtick overall so that's if you want to check that out that's live from tomorrow.tv if there's any you know people at nyu and uh i i mean i'm sure you guys have good you know tech related programs now as i'm sure there's some people who would be very interested in this show and it's cool you know it's sponsored by google cloud and stuff like that so it's it's definitely a really a cool out of left field thing and then the last thing which I'll shameless self-promotion is I also, I have a, a business with a friend where we actually host a game show, which we bring to schools and camps. We started it when I was a senior at NYU. I keep that that little teacher living inside me. I keep the flame burning bright. That's so good to hear. Well, Mark, thank you so much for spending so much time with us to talk about your journey since NYU, talk about what it was like at NYU between 2010 and 2012. It's really nice to hear these stories. As always, thank you to our listeners who can stay connected with NYU RA Alarms, living a dream school alumni version of life. Mark, thank you very much. Your passion, your drive, your ambition, and your willingness to give to others is really hallmarks of who you are. And I really want to thank you for being on tonight's show. Uh, Well, it was a pleasure being here. I hope there's some more people from your current pool of RAs whose favorite book is The Lorax. I'll, I'll end on that. <laughs> yes, there you go. Special thanks to my engineer, Juliana Fonseca, Alesso, and to the current professional staff and alums like Ashley and Stephen and Audrey, who developed great RA alums like Mark, get 
great skill acquisition along the way. If you like the show, look for more content on the website. And if you want to know Ari's favorite books like The Lorax, go to whatthey'reading.blogspot.com. Until next time, care about others, be human, and you will get so much more than you need.